Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the uh, gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. Yeah, hey, hey, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to uh, week number two of our series, Under the Hood. And this is a series where we've opened up uh, Pandora's spiritual box, in a sense, for why we do what we do, uh, the way we do it, hopefully without stepping in doo-doo. Uh, here at, at Rest Church, and we are stoked that you are hanging out with us this morning. I'm Adam, I'm one of the pastors here. And you know, I feel like the Lord has uniquely and strategically prepared me uh, for this series that we're, we're in. And I want to give a shout out to our pastor team and our leaders uh, real quick for, yeah, we can celebrate them. Uh, and I'll let you know why we're celebrating them. Uh, they st they've stepped in in a couple of spots for me over the past several weeks where I was supposed to teach or lead and they showed up uh, when I couldn't because a few weeks back I found out that the floor in our boys' bathroom uh, was literally falling through. And for me, it hasn't been one of those fun uh, Pinteresty, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines DIYs, okay? This has been like measure 16 times to cut once. Um, it, it's been say crap 10 times and go back again to the hardware store because I need something else. Uh, me and the guys at Southside Lowe's, we're, uh, we're on a first name basis now. Uh, for the many trips I had, but I had to basically tear everything out of our our bathroom uh, down to the to the flooring, and it has been a process that has still gone on going on. I found the leak uh, in our toilet actually, and so I've been sistering joists together. I've been rerouting plumbing. I've been laying new subfloor. I've uh, installed a new bathtub and tile, and all of these these things. But I knew from the scriptures, as in life, that uh, if you don't fix the foundation what's underneath and what you do on the surface doesn't matter at all, amen? And so um, God has changed my mindset. He's given me a real good personal look under the hood of our, our boys' bathroom. And I told my wife, Laura, the other day while I was uh, lamenting in the floor, I was like, I know, I know how the Jews felt wandering in the wilderness for 40 years now after, after taking on this task, you know? And I was, I remember being at the store and I was, I was looking at new vanities for myself. So I was imagining myself brushing my teeth in front of the vanity. And then I, I remembered, wait, this is for the boys. So I had to scooch down a little bit, right? Scooch, that's one of those Kentucky words. Scooch down. And, and I, was, I, was, I was doing one of those try before you buy 
kind of things, you know, in the, in the middle of the store. And, and I think the same kind of trial period, the same kind of try before you buy also applies for the church when you're looking for a church to call, you know, your home. And, and the truth is you could look from church to church to church, especially in Western Christianity, and you'd see a lot of similarities among them. Uh, the pastors, for the most part, they would look the same. Uh, the worship leaders, they may sound the same, or the bands may have the same kind of styles. The building itself may, uh, may, may make you feel a lot alike, but it's not a look or a sound or a feel that ensures kingdom success in the church, because I promise you, I guarantee guarantee you, you could pick up our model of co-pastors here. You could train people the same way we train people. You could do the same things that we do, the same ways that we do them, and it doesn't mean that it would work everywhere because you can have exactly the same inputs and get totally different outputs. And so, like, if you're familiar with the the church and Southern Christianity, like, when you walk in somewhere, you kind of know right off the bat when you come into the church, either this church has it going on or it doesn't, right? Like, you can just you can just feel it kind of when you walk into the, the the building. There's this vibe, there's this culture, there's this excitement. People are actually excited about Jesus and what He's done in their lives, and and it's like, hey, this this is this is something special. And then on the flip side, you can walk into a church, um, another church that has a similar formula, and you just go, man, yeah, this one, this just doesn't have that same kind of feel, which raises a really important question for us as we look under the hood this morning of what's the difference? What's the difference in, the, in, in those? What is this special God-given, passionate people, culture, and camaraderie that actually has an in ministry impact and is changing people's lives? What is it? What's the difference? Well, it's not a secret sauce. It's not a model. It's not a particular method or system, and it's not the results of pre-planned programming. But I think it has a lot to do with our mindset, with our mindset. Last week, Pastor Cody gave you a sneak peek into part of this mindset. Uh, he said when it comes to our small groups, you should look for uh, your own level of crazy, you know, when you're filling those out, because all of us have a little bit, an area of crazy, amen. If you don't know what your area is, ask your spouse, ask your mom. They'll probably fill you in, right? Um, and, and by the way, we have a small groups leaders meeting today after service. So if you're interested in, in being a, a rest group or D group leader for this fall, please stay uh, and hang out for that right after church and we'll feed you uh, for that. And then Pastor Cody also said that, that really the foundation for us, what's underneath our subfloor at rest, when you look at, when you look overall at our, our, our mission of restoring Jesus in the home as the church and with the city, there's this foundation underneath that of we deeply desire to make disciples that make disciples that what, can you help me out? That make disciples, right? That's, that's, a, that's so big for everything that we do at, at rest. And so our mindset is fixed in this, but our methods and how we respond are flexible. And so today, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about this culture of response that we have here at Rest Church, that we respond. And, and this is actually part of our benchmarks, uh, benchmark number eight. 
I believe you at benchmark number eight, and here's the mindset for us. I'm going to read this to you as it comes up on the screen. It may not come up here or not, uh, but it says this. We are generous spiritually and financially. We constantly talk about how Jesus is the hero. We pray big prayers and expect big result, bigger results. Our goal isn't to add another religious practice or program into your week, but we want to lead you into an experience with Jesus. Each week in our worship experience, we spend time intentionally doing this. We desire worship that glorifies God is intimate and incredibly fun. And uh, I'm going to get to the incredibly fun part here in a few weeks as we celebrate baptism on September 18th. So if you haven't been baptized or been part of that uh, and been obedient to Christ, if you're a Christian, please come and sign up for that because it's fun. Who's hyped about baptism Sunday coming up? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So today, today is about mindset over method, our mindset over our, our, our method as we respond. And so if you have your Bible, go with me. We're going to go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, that's on the left-hand side, maybe close to the middle of your Bible. And you pull out your phone or your Bible. We're on Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 today. And as you're flipping there, I'll kind of set up the context for you so you're not lost. Isaiah, he was a prophet and he was a priest. And, and there's not a whole lot written about Isaiah the man in the scriptures, uh, we know that he was the son of Amos. We know that he was married. We know that he had a couple of boys of his own. We know that Isaiah served the southern uh, kingdom of Judah during his earthly ministry. And he served under the reign of four different earthly kings. And that during uh, the span of these kings' reigns, Judah was notorious for rebelling against God. They were really sinful. And so a lot of uh, Isaiah's ministry was about calling the people of Judah back to God. And so you may be familiar with uh, Isaiah as the prophet. He's the prophet that preached naked uh, for three years. Yeah. Imagine that call from God on your life, right? Uh, so he preaches like that, as, and it's a symbolism to not, for Israel not to trust Egypt because Egypt would end up ashamed just as Isaiah was ashamed in his nakedness. Um, or you may know Isaiah from the countless prophecies that he wrote about this coming Messiah, Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus even showed up on the scene. So this is Isaiah uh, chapter, chapter 6, and, and, and I'll talk briefly as we read verses 1, 2, and 3 about what those mean, and then we'll kind of get to uh, uh, verses 4 through 8 later on in, in our sermon, but I, I, this is uh, Isaiah's call into prophetic ministry. This is where he moves from a priest uh, to a prophet. I love this story, uh, so much so that I have part of the verse tattooed across my chest. Thanks, Tristan, if you're, if you're here, but this is just such a good story. Isaiah chapter 6, verse Verses 1 through 8. Do you love Jesus, Rest Church? I'm ready to study his word this morning. Amen. This is what it says, Isaiah 6, starting in, in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now just hang here for just a second. Go back with me. Now it was King Uzziah here is mentioned to let us know that this is a real person uh, who really existed, that this is a real story uh, that, that, that happened historically. And the spoiler alert on this is that King Uzziah, he was, he was a good king, but he came to this tragic end and he died of, of, of leprosy. And so Isaiah in this, he has a lot to be discouraged about as, as he's writing uh, these, these words. Because whenever a good leader dies, it's easy for us to go, God, where, where are you at in this 
moment. And then next in Isaiah's vision, this is where he says God is at. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Where was God when all of this happened? He was still enthroned. He was still in charge. He was still in control. And he was reminding Isaiah here that, hey, even though Uzziah doesn't sit on his throne anymore, I always sit on mine. And in verse 2, above him, he seen, stood the seraphim, the seraphim. Uh, now, the seraphim here, these are uh, cherubim or the, the, the living creatures of Revelation uh, chapter 4, and their name means the fiery burning ones. And so these aren't, these are angels, okay? But these aren't, you know, fat babies with, you know, little cupid wings. Uh, but, but these are the fiery burning ones sitting above, uh, standing above him. And, and Isaiah says that each one of these had six wings, with two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, two he flew. So four of the wings there, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet. Four of the wings are used in humility before God, two to hide their face, two to hide their humble uh, parts, their feet. And then two uh, wings were used so that they could fly. And that just means nothing more that they were ready on standby to respond to the commands of God. And in verse 3, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the seraphim here, they're not even uh, directing this toward God, but they're saying this, declaring to one another exactly who this God is. And they say about this God that he is the trinity of holiness. That he's not just holy, not just holy, holy, but he's holy, 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 and the, the, he's the Lord of hosts, and that the whole earth is full of his what? His glory. His glory. And here's what Isaiah sees next in his vision, verses four through eight. I won't break these down yet, but just follow along with me. And the foundations of the threshold at the glory of God shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, in his hand a burning coal and that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins atone for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. In case you're wondering, the, the next verses that come after this in 9 through 13, after Isaiah says yes to God's call, God calls Isaiah to a people. He sent to a people that would have ears but would never listen to what he says. He was sent to a people that would have eyes but could never see the things of God. And he would be sent to people who had hearts but hearts that would never respond. And so Isaiah's ministry was basically a call. He would basically preach these people into hell where only a remnant would remain from those that he spoke to. And so this is a reminder for us that the message the message of the gospel is always, always, always more important than the methods that are used, the messengers that are sent, or even the outcomes that happen. It's just our job to simply respond with, here my Lord, send me. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning with a culture of response, that, that our, our mindset, that it's fixed, okay? It's fixed on Christ, but our methods, they're, they're, they're flexible from time to time. And so we're going to walk through some church culture, some methods used in the path, 
past. We're going to walk through some church culture of rest, of why we do what we do here. And, and, and then we'll kind of wrap this up with how God's glory always demands a response from us. And my question for you today, it's really, really simple. It's just how would you, how would you respond to the call of God on your life this morning? How will you respond to what God's asking you to do today? We'll pray and then walk through the rest of this together. Uh, Jesus, we, we love you and we thank you for loving us and coming uh, on the cross to die for our sin. Lord, we pray for the heart of Isaiah this morning, God, that no matter the task that stands in front of us or the method that we use to accomplish it, Lord, we just, we just wanna be faithful. We just wanna say, here we are, God. Send us wherever that might be, whatever it might look like. And, and Jesus, I, I thank you for, man, just a message today that, you know, will probably be moderately delivered, but it always seems to be so well and exceptionally received from our people here. And, and so I just thank you for that, Lord, for our family here at Rest, the, the church that you've given us to love and, and steward well. And, and we just ask that you would stir us this morning, God. Stir something inside of us. Do, do some remodeling in our heart if, if we need it to be more like you, Jesus. And we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, to come to teach us from your words this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. And God's people said, amen, amen. So have you ever, have you ever bought a car before and then as you drove it around town or on the interstate, you seem to notice this really crazy thing where the same car that you bought is now all around you. Like you notice that car. It seems like everybody else is driving, you know, that car. Well, in psychology, this is called the Bader-Meinhof uh, phenomenon. And, and the reality of the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is that all of those same cars were around you last week, but you just didn't have the mindset then to notice them. You didn't have the mindset to see them at that point, but the, all the cars were, were there last week. But what happens when you buy a new car is that that new car now ha holds a value to you and it causes, in this sense, an awakening in your mindset to notice what's going on around you. And I share that with you, these cars with you this morning, only because it's gonna take, it's gonna take a particular mindset from you this morning as we talk about why we do what we do at, at rest. So I want you to do this, play along for just a second, just close your eyes, just close your eyes with me for a second. Uh, and, and as you do that, I want you to imagine that new car smell coming into your nose. I want you to, I want you to buckle your spiritual seatbelt, and we're going to take a drive. You can open your eyes now. We're actually going to go in reverse first. If you want to, you can tell your neighbor, say, put it in reverse, Terry. Say, you don't have to say that unless you just want to. But we're going to go backwards, though. We're going to go backwards in church culture, uh, in church history for just a minute. See where we, where we used to be so we can get to where we are. So we're going to start in the 1950s. The 1950s. Pull that slide up for me. The 1950s. This was sort of the happy days era of church, right? Uh, and, 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 and during this era, era, families would typically all get together and go to church together. Like Sunday morning was set aside. You didn't miss Sunday morning service. And whenever you looked at the church buildings themselves around, a lot of them looked very similar to, to one another. They'd be ornate. They'd be prestigious. They usually uh, had stained 
glass windows. Have you seen a church with stained glass windows? Um, Side note to that, actually earlier on in church culture before the 50s, stained glass windows came about to communicate the gospel for those who couldn't read. So now you know that. But there were stained glass windows in these churches a lot. Uh, Sometimes they would have marble inside. They would have uh, mahogany wooden seats called, does anybody know? Pews, right? It's a funny word, right? Pew, right? So they had these pews there. um, And and, and there might be a church steeple or church bell outside. And when people worshiped, it was typically to an organ or a, a choir behind them. A pastor would typically preach either in a suit or in a robe, depending on denominational lines. And, the, and, and this idea came about, and I think it honestly started in a good place. This idea came about, though, that, that you should that wear your Sunday best because God deserves the best, which I, ha- I have no issue with in, inherently. And people loved this until they didn't. And specifically, Sunday best kind of shifted some, somewhere along the way to what I'll just call the pawpaw argument uh, of you should find the most expensive and formal attire that you own because it honors God, which isn't a Bible verse, and it's not a commandment, and, and so we shouldn't treat it like it is. It wasn't a commandment of God, but it was a tradition of man. And, and what happened was that culture of values, they started to subtly and slowly shift over time, and a newer generation came along, and they started going to church a lot less. And it wasn't because they needed God less than the generation before them. It's just when they showed up at church, they were, they were kind of perplexed uh, by, by this confusion that, that would sometimes happen in the church. And, and what they, they, they just didn't see a real need for the church anymore. The church didn't seem relevant to them. And so people started to stop attending every Sunday and, and became those kind of uh, Christmas and Easter believers. So that leads us into the 1980s and the 90s of, of churches. And spiritual leaders started to look in at the pulse of the church in, in America. And they noticed that people were getting tired of going to church. And it wasn't like I said, primarily just because people hated God. That wasn't the primary reason. It's just because when they showed up at church, there was boredom and confusion because traditionalism, not tradition, traditionalism seemed to be at odds with some of the things that the scriptures had to say, and they were confused. And so with a heart for the lost, that kind of mindset, some, uh, some renegade spiritual leaders that got harshly criticized in the 80s and 90s. What they do, did is they started to shift their message to reach more people for Jesus. And so they stopped doing some stuff. They stopped demanding that Christian men wear suits into church. They stopped uh, insisting that Christian women had to wear dresses into worship. And for the first time, people wore Blue jeans into the church. Some even wore t-shirts. One guy showed up in a baseball hat. And, and, and then this change as it happened, one side looked at the other side and pointed and said, heresy. And the other side responded, well, is God really that concerned with what I wear into a building 
Does God have a favorite paint color that we're supposed to paint the ceilings with that we don't know about? Are there really certain phrases we're supposed to pray in our prayer so that God hears them? And the basis of this argument came from different places in the scripture. One example is 1 Samuel uh, 16 that says this. Uh, For the Lord sees not as as man sees as we look on the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And so Sunday best shifted from what you wear um, to when you die to yourself and and bring bring, uh, yourself to Jesus to give him the glory that he deserves. That, That was Sunday best all of a sudden. And so the methods, they shifted, right? It went from dress up, to dress down, it, it moves from pews to soft chairs. People stopped uh, singing along with choirs for the most part and started singing, or from hymnals and started singing from uh, overhead projectors or laser projectors later on that were up on a screen. An organ led worship moved to a band. And what happened is that the church became relevant and engaging and fun again. Um, and, and, and just as a side note on this, because we just talked about it, a lot of people today will say that you shouldn't wear a hat in church because it's disrespectful. And after different conversations with different people on this, what I've come to find is that a lot of people actually believe this just because they've heard someone else say it. And so they've adopted it. And then you'll have a conversation with some people that are, you know, maybe slightly studied in this area. And, and they'll go, well, this is an, an ancient tradition where uh, a sign of respect when a superior would walk into the room, you would, you would remove your hat. And look, I have, no, I have no issue with that. If that's you, by all means, you do you. But the problem is when we mandate these things on the people around us, because that verse particularly that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if we're going to take it out of con- context, Cody, let's just go and take it all the way out of context, okay? So what it says is in 1 Corinthians 11, it also says that you ladies are supposed to wear head coverings in church. So the next time that your teenager wants to wear that St. Louis Cardinals ball cap, what you should do, according to 1 Corinthians, is take it off of their head and put it on yours, right? Just, I digress. But like, uh, God can hear my prayers through my hat this morning. Just, just put that out there. Um, so let's keep going. We fast forward a few years to the 2000s, the 2000s of, of, of church leadership, the Jesus freak stuff, you know, um, was it Michael Tate? Is he the leader of that? Yeah, a Jesus freak. And what happens is you look backwards historically at the church in America, is what I'm talking about, the things that, that, that were new and different for 30 and 40 and 50 years all of a sudden became the norm kind of for churches everywhere. And what we see by looking back is that if you don't adapt, if you don't change, you won't last. If you don't shift your methods in how you share the gospel, your effectiveness will lessen over time because the world around you is constantly changing whether you like it or not. William Pollard, he says this about business change. I think it applies to the church too. He says this. He says, the arrogance of success is to think that what you did yesterday will be sufficient for tomorrow. So the message, right? The message stayed the same, but the mindset, the mindset stayed the same, but the methods all shifted. And so I'm not going to draw this out much more. It's not the focus for us this morning. Uh, But let's bring this to uh, the 2020s to now. So let's start with church online. Church online, post-COVID at least, uh, like it wasn't even a cultural standard five years ago, but now it's, it's kind of a standard. Most churches everywhere do the church online thing. 
Uh, whenever we first started uh, Facebook Live back in the, uh, we had a building on Hinkleville Road, and uh, at, at that building we had like we had a borrowed like one borrowed microphone that worked, like some karaoke speakers, and and what would happen for church online is me or Pastor Cody would usually take our phone and it would be duct taped to a beam that was in the center of the room to run uh, church online or Facebook Live, and uh, it was so dark in there, like we didn't have good lights like we do now. It was so dark in there, it looked. It it was grainy and the sound, and it looked like a, uh, a terrorism promo video or something, like when you would, when you would watch it. But that's kind of where we, where we started with that, you know. So we've come a long way. But this generation right now, they're never going to know a world apart from social media. This generation that exists right now, they'll never, never know a world apart from social media. And social media is that, is that drug sometimes that sells the illusion of, of community and intimacy, but a lot of times it leaves us drowning in comparisons, you know? And today, most church buildings look the same. Most church buildings look the same, right? Instead of a, like a, an altar all the way across, there's usually a stage. Um, instead of the lights being super bright during service, it's kind of dark, you know, maybe like a concert. Um, and the lobbies are a lot bigger than they used to be back in the day. Most churches give away free donuts and coffee. That's not a secret thing we do. Um, if they can afford it, most do that. Children's ministries, uh, like if they have the budget for it, it rivals your local park or Disney even to some degree, depending on how much money the church may, may have. And so right now, this younger generation, man, they are skeptical and they are jaded and they are distrusting toward the church for, for at least one reason being that there was a belief system that was communicated from their parents or grandparents that was maybe spoken but wasn't lived out. And it was a lot of do as I say, but not do as I do. And so, look, I, I, I don't blame them for feeling the way that they do. From my current conversations, though, people aren't looking for a particular style of church. They're, they're not looking for a particular style of church. A lot of churches work really hard to make their ministries relevant. But this generation, they reject relevant because they're crying out, I just want something that's real. And so they're not looking for someone that looks cool. They're not looking for uh, any of that stuff. They just want someone who cares because the relationship is the new, is the new relevant to, to a large degree. Because they don't care. Look, they don't care about the size of the church as much as they care about the size of your heart. And this is one thing, man, that has frustrated me to no end from the churches, some of the, some, not all, some of the churches that I've walked into, some of the churches that I've, I've worked in, because when you ask them about their vision and go, hey, why, why, do you, why do you do certain things, you know, the way that you do them? And a lot of times you'll get this answer of, well, we've just always done it like this. That's the baseline. I had this conversation several weeks ago at Walmart um, with this lady named Tabitha. Uh, she I was by myself getting some groceries, and I told my wife about this story. And she, she approached me, she seen that I had tattoos, and so she was like, hey, I like your ink. Where'd you get uh, tattoos at? And so the Holy Spirit prompted in me, and we had a conversation about, about that. And then I you know, asked her about her relationship with Jesus in the middle of Walmart and uh, started talking to her and invited her to our church. And, and one of the first things she said to me in response was, well, I'm a recovering addict, you know, and so I'm not, I'm not really sure if I'd fit in you know, at the church. And so we talked through that and 
And then she did commit to come. I don't know whether she, I didn't see her, but I don't know if she came or not. But she said, oh, I'll definitely be there. And these were the words out of her mouth. She, but she said, but I promise not to wear shorts. And when she said that, it absolutely broke my heart. Because what we've done, intentionally or unintentionally, is we've created this standard in the church in America, specifically in the South, where people need to clean up before they come and meet Jesus. And it makes no sense. It doesn't identify in any way with the scriptures. In fact, it's given Christ a black eye as the image of non-believers that look in at the church. It's like saying that to someone's like going, hey, you should really take a shower before you take a bath. It makes no sense. And it frustrates me. And so what do we do? How do we respond to all of this? When we think about all of the church culture in the past up now to the present, well, what you and I, we need a windshield and we need a rearview mirror. We need a windshield and we need a rearview mirror. The reason we need a rearview mirror, and it's kind of small in your car, right, is we need to be able to look backwards at what the saints before us have done and celebrate their wins, man. The ways that they've made the gospel known and shared it in, in creative and amazing ways that have done so many great things for the kingdom. We need to celebrate that. But also, we need to look backwards to not make the same mistakes that they've made. We need a rearview mirror. And then in your car, you also have a windshield, right? Because we need to look forward to where God is taking us right now. We can't, we can't sit back on the things that God did through us 5, 10, 15 years ago, but we need to go, God, where, where are you doing right now? Where are you stirring in this moment? And you'll notice in your car, your windshield is significantly bigger than your rearview mirror. And in the Old Testament, what they would do is sometimes they would build altars of remembrance, so we need to do that. But we also need to have a vision. Just like Isaiah in our text, he had a vision from God that came through his windshield, he got this clear picture of who God was, what he was up to. And I want you to look at his response now with me. Verse 5 of Isaiah 6, he says this, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I love this. I love Isaiah's first initial response to seeing God. It's a response of repentance. Like notice Isaiah here, he doesn't look at God in glory, which is an amazing thing. He doesn't go, woe is God. No, no, no. His response is, woe is me. That's what the holiness of God does to us. When we, when we look at our sinful nature and, and see the glory of God, we can't, it, it forces us to a response in ourselves to see God's holiness. And we see our own, our own sinfulness as well. And I think that's a great place for us to start. As we, as, we, as we have this conversation this morning to go, Jesus, hey, I, I, I repent of my traditionalism that maybe has gotten in the way of your kingdom. God, I, I repent of my, my personal preferences to believe that the church is about my favorite things when it's about your favorite things. God, I, I repent of these things. And so could we all just commit like Isaiah and take this same approach this morning that our mindset is fixed, but our methods are, are flexible. See, what happens is whenever we see God for who he is, it always, it always changes stuff inside of us. Things start to change. And things started to change for Isaiah in this text. Look at it. Um, there, were, there, there are certain tools, actually, that God uses to bring this reality and make it clearer to him. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken from the, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin 
is, is atoned for. And so what happens is Isaiah is standing in the presence of the glory of God, and he is made drastically of, made aware of his sinfulness, and it's after this acknowledgement of his sin that the seraph, the, the angel, takes a coal from the altar with a tongue. He puts it to Isaiah's lips, and he says, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is, a, is atoned for. And this is a really important detail in, in, in this for us because there was nothing that Isaiah could do in and of his own strength or effort that would remove the guilt of sin in his life. There's nothing that you can do to remove the guilt that comes with sin in your life. But what happens is that atonement is made for Isaiah at the altar. The altar was a place of, of, of sacrifice. And so the purification here is specifically, it's specifically applied to Isaiah's lips, which is the origin of his, of his sin. And, and I was reading this just wondering, going, man, maybe this morning for a lot of us, the origin of our sin is our mouths. And, and so Isaiah is made, made pure as this touches his lips. And, and now all of a sudden he's ready because of this acknowledgement, this confession. He's ready to preach the words of God from clean lips. And there are some tools, there are some methods that God uses to make this picture clear for Isaiah. There was a smoke around the throne. There was tongs and an altar and a coal. And, and those tools, they didn't have any power in of themselves, but these tools, when they were put in the right hands and used the right way, they simultaneously pointed Isaiah to God's holiness and his own unholiness. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the perfect church service. Have you ever wondered what that might look like? The perfect church service would be one that we were almost unaware of. Where our attention would have been on God. And like I feel this quote, man, because I understand after remodeling my bathroom that the right tool used the right way and the right job, it makes all the difference. It makes all of the difference. And so if you've ever wondered before, man, why did, why did I do that in service at Rest Church before? I want to quickly run through a few of these um, as we do this. We don't have time to get all, all of them, but um, they're all in an effort to make a big deal of Jesus. But, but just want to bring some clarity to some of this. So let's start with our building. Our building itself. Um, have you ever heard someone before say, you can't say that in here because you're in a church? Have you ever said, maybe you've said that before yourself too. Maybe you were playing basketball in the church gym and you cussed or something and somebody's like, you can't say that in here, it's the church, right? Um, you know, just, just thinking about that. And this isn't like permission to have sailor language or anything like that. But, but like, is there like some like barrier where God can only hear what we say and hear and not out there? Plus, if, if the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks, what does it matter where you're standing at? God hears it all the same. Um, but, but there are a number of scriptures I can allude to on this building thing. We'll just go to Paul and his letter to the Corinthians first. Um, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? In Acts 17, it similarly says, the God that made the world and everything in it, he doesn't live in uh, the Lord, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples that are made by men. 
So when Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, uses that you there, it's plural. It's for we as, as the church is what, it, what he's talking about. He's saying that we are, are God's house. And the confusion on this, I think, um, the Bible has no confusion in it. We are confused sometimes in how we interpret it. But I think the confusion on this may come from the progressive presence of God throughout the scriptures. So if you look back to Genesis, the very beginning, God's presence walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And then as you continue through the Old Testament, God's temporary presence would show up from time to time, maybe through a cloud or, or fire or dwell in a tent or an ark. And then when Jesus Christ comes to this planet, he becomes the full embodiment of the temple of God. The, full, he, the fullness of God dwells inside of him. As Jesus dies and ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends and now comes to live inside of every believer uh, who confesses Christ. And so it's not that a building is holy, it's that we are now holy people. And so this building, um, plus Jesus, he never talks about the church in terms of building. He always talks in terms of kingdom. Um, and, and the kingdom really is much more of a, uh, of a when than it is a, a where but this building, it's a tool, it's a, it's a method, and we're thankful for it. We're, we want to be good stewards of what God has given us in this, in this tool to reach people, but ultimately we understand um, this is not God's house. This is just a building because I am God's house. Next, inside of our building, we oftentimes use uh, lights and TVs and videos and haze and computers and a sound system and other tech to communicate the gospel. But why do we do that? Let's, uh, I just want to hit on the haze machine here first. Well, the haze machine, first off, it is a water-based solution. Um, it is not to be confused with a smoke machine or a fog machine. It does not cause asthma. It will never set off any fire alarm. Uh, it is odorless. It does not leave a residue. And we utilize it because what it does is it helps add texture and depth to the room. For those that are in the back of the room, uh, for those who are watching with church online, it allows them to see uh, people in 3D more than just a flat image as they look. And, and, and when it's Use it used correctly. Sometimes we use it incorrectly. It's always my fault when it's used incorrectly. Um, but, but when it's used correctly, instead of projecting just a, a light down on a surface, it'll let you see the, the whole beam. Plus, scripturally, God, as you've seen in our text with Isaiah, God himself would use smoke or fog or clouds to depict a manifestation of his presence, just like what we read a second ago in Isaiah. And so th that's really a big part of what we're trying to communicate with this haze is the manifestation of the presence of God. I remember, Cody, you may or may not remember this, back in youth group, uh, we were at church one Wednesday night, and it was like one of those uh, rock your face off kind of worship where Jesus just showed up. Every, people are crying and hands are lifted and we're just, yes, God, yes. And outside of the building, this, this dense fog had dropped down around our, our, around our building. And we were talking about after the fact, like, man, we should have we opened up the doors to let this again to, to remind us of the, of the presence of God. But it was, it was a thick spirit in, in, in there of God, the Holy Spirit. And it was a physical thick spirit outside of the building. And so just an amazing thing pointing toward the presence of God. Um, 
next in our methods. Some might notice that we don't ever pass plates. We never hand uh, buckets around here whenever we take tithes and, 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 and offerings. And this doesn't work everywhere. It's just how we, how we do it. We're not saying it's wrong to pass plates or buckets. It's just where, where we're coming from on this. And you can do Venmo and Stripe and a lot of other stuff if you want to give that way. But I've always felt a lot of sort of pressure uh, being in churches sometimes when that plate would come across my lap especially as a new believer, and I felt this, this pressure, almost like I was supposed to now pay for the religious goods and services that were rendered to me, almost like Walmart. And, um, and, and we were going, is that what God is really asking us to do, though, when it comes to giving? We said, you know, that's, that's not, not for us. Now, now, do we want you to give? Yes, yes, yes. Do we need you to give? Yes, yes. If, if you're a family partner here, 100%. If you're a guest and you feel led to give, by all means, please, please do. It helps us take the mission of Jesus further here when you do give to restore Jesus in the home as the church and with the city. And without it, we, we, we couldn't be here this morning doing uh, what, what we're doing. It allows us to reach more people for Jesus. And I actually got in trouble one time. Y'all, you remember that? I got in trouble one time at church for telling people not to give. Yeah, just one time. Um, if they couldn't do it with a cheerful heart. And here's our, here's our scripture basis on this. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, we don't preach on percentages. We don't preach on amounts, but we preach this. Um, the point is this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And in the heart from us, the response in giving for us is this, okay? Because our God has been so generous with us, we want to reflect his generosity with his bride and with the people around us. Plus, plus, when you take on the mindset and mentality that God is the owner of everything you have anyway, that it's all on loan for you, it'll totally change the, the, the way that you see money. Because here's what happens. You can either... You can either love people and use money, or you can use people and love money. But here at Rest Church, we believe that Jesus is Lord of all, and that includes the Lord over our wallet and our debit card. Amen. And so that's, that's our heart on, on tithe boxes, which are placed in the room. Um, next one, worship. This is another big tool we use to draw the attention to the Lord Jesus. Worship itself. There are parts and moments of worship that are uh, loud and energetic, and you're back there getting hype and you know excited uh, about who Jesus is. And and we say this in the pre-service video. We we sing really loud because our God is really worthy. And then there are other moments of service where, you know, it's psalm and it's reflective and, and, and we're maybe singing some scripture that, that, that we've uh, read or talking about what that means and how we should respond in that. But, but here's, the, here's the idea of the loud worship, that there shouldn't be better worship in your home watching the UK game than there is here at church because we have someone here significantly more valuable to praise. Amen. Right. Yeah, we can celebrate that. Um, and, and, and you'll notice during worship people lifting their hands and sometimes on their face or on their knees during worship. And this is a scriptural basis to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says to offer up your body, your, your body as, as a spiritual sacrifice, as an offering before God. Um, in 1 Timothy, I think it's 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 8, he says that he desires men everywhere, people everywhere to lift holy hands. You'll notice here there's not an asterisk beside this that says, if you feel like doing this, right? It says to lift holy hands before the Lord. Sometimes, you've heard me say this before, but sometimes when I'm in worship, 
when I lift my hands up, however you want to do it, when I lift my hands to heaven, to, glory, to the glory of God, what it'll sometimes do is it will, it will move my heart to that same kind of position. Like, like I come in here sometimes, I know you may not believe this, but even as a pastor, I come in here sometimes and my heart's just not in the right place. But what, what, what'll happen some, from time to time is if I'll change my body, it'll start to shift my heart to who Jesus is. Plus, the people next to us um, help influence us. Uh, Michael Engel, he said a few weeks ago about Pastor Cody and in his worship, he said this, he said, Cody bouncing around in worship is just contagious to me. It's just contagious to me. And so you never know how the worship that you do may affect you or the people around you. And then I also found this meme I thought was funny. Can you pull that up about worship? This is how, what I think I look like during praise and worship and then what I actually look like. Um, just remember the Lord's looking at your heart, not the outward appearance. So it's all good. Um, finishing these up here. I can go on and on about this, right? I could talk about preaching and, and like we want you to feel like like the preacher just had, got off a FaceTime phone call with God and has this amazing message that God has given to us that we want to share with you. We want preaching that helps you lean in, that actually is helpful for you to understand who God is so you can see who you are in response to that. We, we believe in that and in uh, and other things, but do we, do we need all of this stuff to worship Jesus? No. No, beautiful buildings, cool environments, they can help assist to be a compass to Jesus, but they aren't necessary. What we're trying to get to is we're trying to get to people who are fully surrendered to Jesus because what happens when you are fully surrendered to Jesus and it gets inside of you, you can't help but let it out, and we know that. And so when you get excited, it, just, it, it, come, it volcanoes out of you about who Jesus is. And I know some people would look at this and, and look in at this and go, well, that, that's just a show. Y'all are just putting on a show. And to them, this is what I would say. We want to use every tool and every method we possibly can short of sin with the goal to help worshipers worship, to light people's hearts on fire for Jesus. We want you to meet God in a transcendent, in a transformative sort of way. And we will do that using the best and most innovative techniques that we possibly know how to shine the spotlight brighter on Jesus because he is worthy. This isn't unlike the four men who broke in through the roof to get their crippled buddy to Jesus. They overcome the obstacles around them and they didn't see these as obstacles but as an opportunity. And so when we look at new things that we try to bring in method to method, we don't go, hey, that'll never work. We don't, we don't have that mentality. We go, what if this worked? What, what if that worked? And so if these things can create an environment to draw people in, to the greatest message on planet earth. Why, why would you not consider doing those things to share the gospel? And again, in case you didn't catch this why, here's the why. Here's the why behind the message, verse four. The glory of God is at stake in this. The glory of God is at stake in this thing. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, underlined smoke, because that's God's haze machine here. You'll never read Isaiah 6 the same again. You're welcome. 
But the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of God. Back in verse 3, it said the angels were proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Verse 4 is a picture of the glory of God. That when the glory of God shows up, things change. The foundations of the threshold literally shook. And the word for glory there in the Hebrew is kavod. It means fat, it means heavy, it means weighty. Imagine with me for a second that you have a pool in your backyard. And, 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 and you take something heavy to drop into your pool. I don't know, a, a kid, a heavy kid. And, and you drop that kid into the pool. What happens when that heaviness hits the water? It causes a response, right? It, it makes the water displace. It, it causes a disturbance. It shakes the thresholds of your pool liner, right? And that's the same thing. That's the same picture of the glory of God. When the glory of God shows up, it's palpable. You can feel it. There's this heaviness to it. And I was wondering as I was reading this, I was like, man, I wonder if people have experienced that kavod of God recently in their life. When my son Jackson, when we pray at night, sometimes he'll come and lay his head on my chest. And when he does that, I can feel the weight of him on me. Have you felt the kavod of God on you recently? I'm wrapping this up. If you were to ask me what keeps you up at night, if you were like, A.B., man, what keeps you up at night? What do you think about? What do you, what do you, what, what's, what's your wheels turning about? I tell you, it's this. I am constantly being consumed with thinking about how we can help every single person who walks through the doors of Rest Church be head over heels for Jesus. How we can help them to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. That's what keeps me up at night. Hebrews tells us that as pastors, we have a, to give an account for your spiritual life of your soul. Like before God one day, so that's, you know, 300 or so of you here. If you look at the course of Rest Church, we're talking over 5,000. And so like this is something that we are constantly praying about and, and, and thinking through with, with the method, you know. But the message we preach, it never, ever changes. The methods are going to change. But the message stays the same. Here for us at rest, people aren't just a number for us to help grow our church. People aren't just projects for us to fix, but they are sons and daughters of the living God, of the most high God who is ferociously pursuing you. And we wanna help you see him and know him more. That's our heart. It's why the messages that we preach, it's not about how to be happy. It's not about how to get out of debt. It's not even... Uh, to how to have a better marriage. It's not about to have a greater expositional understanding of the book of Jonah. It's just Jesus. That's what the message is about. It's just Jesus because Jesus is always enough. No model and no method has ever changed anyone's life, but Jesus has and he continues to do so. And so the power of this isn't in a style of worship Buildings don't change people's lives. Relevant sermon series aren't the secret sauce. This thing, man, it can't be packaged. It can't be produced out of, out of a human type of, of effort. God alone does this through people who are willing to be used. And we believe here that he can use anyone for his glory. In fact, we are counting on that to be a catalyst to build his kingdom. 
Isaiah sees all of these things of God. He, he acknowledges his sin. He sees the glory of God, the tools that were used to bring clarity to that. And this is his last response. This is what he says before God now. He says, this is his culture of response. God says, who could I send? Who, who would go for me? And then he says, here am I. Send me. Send me. And so church, God, God has called you this morning to respond. The gospel always forces a response. And so the next time that you think of yourself as, you know, unworthy or incapable or unprepared, maybe you felt too young or too green or too inexperienced or maybe, you know, you thought, well, I'm not married or I'm the wrong gender or, or, or whatever it is that the enemy has set in front of you. The good news is that Christ, that there's no excuse that Christ can't overcome. And, and in fact, everything that he's called you to, he has fully prepared and equipped you to do. Or he will show you along the way if you would just lean into him. So you don't have to be confident in your own gifting. It doesn't matter if you're not a gifted speaker or not. None of that matters. You don't have to have any confidence in yourself. You just have to lean into the confidence of Christ and what he's done and what he can do. And, and it's really a question of do you believe that? Do you believe him that he can use you? It's not about you. It's always about him. And you can do this when your mindset gets fixed on Jesus and you understand that these methods, man, they're going to be flexible. 